1: Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission, and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau. expert-trained gun handler. The unit that I was detailed to was the Counterterrorism Center's Weapons of Mass Destruction unit. Crash Bang School? Do I have that right? You don't sit there and negotiate with them. You hit the gas pedal and you move I Hit the gas, plow through the threat. You're trying
2: to rewire your brain. Crash and bang. So you're not going to die.
1: I'm really upset by the experience you had at Quantico. I don't know how I got so lucky. You end up locking eyes with her in her final
2: moment. These women want to pursue these careers, but have no idea how. I I started realizing we need to maybe change the gender narrative.
1: Tracy Walder was recruited by the CIA while a sorority sister at the University of Southern California. Her assignment to a highly specialized unit in the aftermath of 9-11 had her tracking terrorists around the globe, including in combat theaters. In her book... The Unexpected Spy, Tracy shares the unvarnished truth into George Bush's decision to go to war with Iraq, and her experiences in the CIA, then in the FBI, and now as a mother and a teacher in Texas, who's still doing amazing things, especially for young women. She'll also have a thing or two to say about arming teachers. Tracy Walder, the sorority sister spy, joins us for this episode the Bureau. Tracy Walter, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me, Frank.
1: Yeah, I think timing's right on this. You are really uniquely qualified to to tell us about some things and and even some things that are are in the news these days. And you've been in the news these days covering things like the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas, and the issue of teachers and guns. And I want to get to that because your opinion really matters on that topic. But I'm enthralled by the story of your journey, um, as detailed in your book, The Unexpected Spy. Um, your journey really is one not of I, not really of distinct experiences, so much in my opinion, but rather this continuous pathway that's got you to where you are today and draws from each of your experience to to make you the teacher that you are today, doing amazing things for your students, with your students, particularly, young women. So I, I view it as hey your service to the nation hasn't stopped, but rather it's just transitioned into something else. Uh, what do you think?
2: Well, thank you so much yeah. for that. I don't feel like I've really done a lot or any more than anyone else has, I guess. But I've you know, kind of always said that the CIA taught me what I want to teach. And then the FBI taught me who I want to teach. And I think if I hadn't had those experiences, there's no way that I would have Really found my my path and purpose as a teacher.
1: Yeah, indeed, indeed. I think there's a lesson there for all of us for uh, to draw upon what we've learned, uh, what to do, what not to do, who who to be like, who not to be like, to be ourselves. And then something you know, something that really strikes me uh, after reading your book is a theme that's developed with almost all of my guests, which is the advice that they give to not follow other people's expectations for you. And I, I wonder if you just tell me what you think of that in terms of applying it to to your life experience.
2: So I think that that's so, so key. And it's funny because I feel like I combat that almost every day in the classroom with my students, you know, the expectations that they have for themselves or what their parents have for them or what society has for them. And I think that then leads to a lot of kind of lack of career fulfillment, quite frankly, because you're fulfilling someone else's um, expectations rather than your own. And I think for me, you know, I I grew up really not really wanting to pursue the careers that I ended up having, um, but because I didn't think that someone like me was supposed to have them. And I think that in a way set me up to have kind of a low confidence and a little bit of low self esteem, um, because I was never really finding my little perfect fit for for myself and for what my talents were.
1: Yeah, I um, sometimes I almost think your book should be should have been called the sorority sister spy or something (laughs) like that, because that that is your background. And literally, I want to hear. I want to hear you tell the story of the, your, your recruitment by the CIA. Because one <laughs> one day you're at USC, University of Southern California. You're what, what was the name of your sorority?
2: A Delta Gamma.
1: Delta Gamma girl, and you see you come upon a, a recruitment fair at on campus. You're a junior, right? Yes. That's yeah, correct. and you just kind of look around at the tables, and and what do you see?
2: Well, so first, if it's okay, I'd like to kind of orient the audience in the time frame because that that's usually one of the biggest questions I get is, you know, why did you want to do this? And the, the thing is, why would I? So this was sort of, you know, mid to late 90s-ish. This is a pre-9-11 world, which I know is like really hard for people to sort of wrap their brains around. And my idea of terrorism was, I know you're familiar with this, was Oklahoma City bombing, Ruby Ridge, Waco. That, that is the sort of Domestic terrorism, if you will, that I kind of grew up with. And so I think for me, the CIA was a bunch of really old dudes working Russia, right? Like it was James Bond, I think, was what I had in my mind. And James Bond, I think it was still like Sean Connery at the time. And what does, you know, some 17 year old girl, have really in common with that. But my whole life really has been sort of defying expectations you know, I went to USC, I went on a full scholarship, my dad is a professor there. And I never really expected actually to join a sorority because I was bullied so much growing up, horrifically. And I think I gave it a try. And, you know, that helped me gain a lot of confidence, to be completely honest with you. I went to school to be a high school history teacher. I had a really influential teacher in 11th grade that helped me overcome my blaze, I guess. And so I wanted to be just like him, um, loved history. And so I majored in history, was going to be a high school history teacher. But in 1997, I saw, I guess, the interview, which was really the interview that launched Osama bin Laden, I guess, onto the world stage, if you will. And it was the first interview that a Western news station had really ever done with him. And I remember watching that in the in the gym of my sorority house. And in that interview, um, he declared war, he issued his FATWA against the United States. But then he also issued his fatwa against Jews. And so I'm Jewish. And I think when you're, you know, a 19 year old self-centered kid, you're like, who is this dude? And why doesn't he like me? You know, and I think that really was the beginning of me wanting to find out more information. But again, in 1997, USC is a great school. There weren't, classes I could take on terrorism. It wasn't a unit of study per se that you could have. So I started taking introduction to Islam, modern Middle Eastern history, any classes that I could find that would help me learn more. But again, I didn't know where you could work to do this job. Um, And so, you know, I interned in the Senate with um, Senator Tom Daschle, who I think was the minority leader at the time, thought maybe I could do that. He would, they weren't focusing on terrorism, loved the job, loved the internship, but and they weren't doing that. And I thought, well, I'm going to go to this career fair. This was during, I think it was the dot-com boom. Everyone was wanting to work at dot-coms. And I um, saw that the CIA had a table. At that time, they were recruiting liberal arts majors. That's what it said. Went to the um, table, asked the individual at the table, hey, do you guys work this like terrorism thing? Because again, I know that sounds silly, but we have to think about the time. It just wasn't a big deal, I guess. And so I, um, gave him my resume. He said, they do, it's a very small group. And I really just carried on with my life until they, they called.
1: <laughs> yeah. And they, they seem to have called fairly quickly, right?
2: Yes. I'd say within about two to three weeks ish.
1: Yeah. 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 And what, what were your soror- the sorority sisters that you did share anything with or were allowed to, what, what was their reaction to what you were doing?
2: I mean, I think just complete, shock. My, I remember getting the phone call and I believe it was my roommate who took the phone call from, this was back in the days where we really didn't have cell phones. You kind of shared a line um, in your room and she just thinking it was ridiculous and a joke, I guess. So they all kind of thought it was a little out there, I guess. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and obviously the process is, is rigorous and interviews (laughs) and psyche vowels. And and I assume, I assume a polygraph exam at some point. Yeah. But you you make it through there. Although some of the, I have to tell you, some some of what you share in the book is kind of hysterical because you, you know, getting to and from places on time, showing up on time, interacting with some of the other applicants, all really told in a very kind of funny way. I'm sure it was unnerving at the time, though.
2: It was extremely unnerving at the time. I mean, I I think. I mean, there, I do detail point uh, a time in my book where, you know, cause it's different hoops that you have to jump through at each step, right? Whether they call back or not. And I, I finally made it to really like the last one. And that's when they, they fly you out to DC, do all it's the most expensive one. Right. And yeah. so, um, it was at that point, um, when I had a very disastrous polygraph that I came back to my hotel room and, and called my recruiter and just said, I, I'm out, I don't want to do this anymore but he convinced me to stay and I did.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I as I was reading that passage on the polygraph I w- had to wonder whether they were faking it and telling you there was a problem when there wasn't but but who knows?
2: I personally think now like I'm reflecting back on it but I, I think you are right. I do think they were probably trying to see how I would react to that and give me a hard time. I think at that time though I didn't See it yeah. That I didn't no. that
1: oh yeah. yeah, no, I can imagine the stress on, on that. So now you're this uh, West Coast California girl. Your family's also from California, and now you've you've got to go East Coast and and supposedly get into training, but you you end up having a very non traditional training experience. Tell tell us about your your first weeks months in the CIA.
2: Yes. So the CIA is a little bit different than the FBI. As you know, the FBI, you just report to Quantico right away. And then, you know, you go to wherever they send you. CIA is different in that it's always been that you actually go to headquarters first. Um, I kind of like either one. There wasn't a, a way that I preferred. It's just the, you you wait basically at headquarters until you get your what we call farm date or your, your training date. And for me, <laughs> mine was supposed to be right around September 11th. Yay! Um, and obviously, that got a little bit changed. And so I was—I got very lucky, you know. At CIA, and I even think FBI is this way too. You don't just show up and say, "Okay, I want to work in this division at this place." It doesn't work like that. And so I knew that, and I always figured—I thought I'd get working Russia since it was such a big deal, right, at the time. And then I could move to terrorism when I wanted to. But I was really lucky in that I was placed in the counterterrorism center. That was my my first assignment. So awesome. And my job was to look at terrorist training camps who's coming, who's going? Is there an increase in activity? You know, is this signaling something? Um, I guess. So that's what I was doing on September 11th.
1: Yeah. Uh, we all remember where we were. I was in the Miami office of the FBI. And uh, of course, as the flight manifest came in that day, we learned that 14 of the 19 hijackers had come from South Florida um, and literally. The FBI, the entire intelligence community stopped what they were doing. You eventually, not soon thereafter, got shifted to a very specialized unit. What What are you allowed to tell us about that?
2: Yeah, I have to be honest with you. I'm actually very surprised the CIA let me put that in the book at all, because it still is classified. And I mean, I'm very appreciative of them allowing me to. And I was the first person along with those two gentlemen to work on that program ever. Um, so I was very surprised that they allowed me to put that in there. And I think I was read in or briefed on that program about a week or so before September 11th, I had been selected by my manager. He thought I was doing a good job and um, you know, briefed us on this particular program. And I don't think they were going to start that program for another probably six-ish months, but they kept saying spring of 2002. So, Obviously, the events of September 11th moved that up, and about ten days later, that program um, got off the ground. And I guess you know, now that I look back on it, it really was at the tip of the spear um, in our war against terror overseas. And it was obviously a very unique experience. You're in a very now it's not this way, but it started out in a very, very, very small room, only enough for five people, and. George Tennant, who was the head of the agency at the time, was in there every single day with us, and obviously we got to know him very, very well. <laughs> you know, built up a rapport yeah. with him. Yeah. No,
1: no pressure when, but but you know, there's a small room with a half a handful of people doing some <laughs> extremely specialized work. The the nation has been attacked, and here comes the director of the CIA every single day. <laughs> How you doing? How you doing?
2: How you doing? Right? Yeah like that though. At first, you know, I have to say like the first week or two, I I was very nervous. I'm, I'm not, I am not going to sugarcoat that, you know, I adore him, but life would have been better if he wasn't in that room the first two weeks. Right. Because I was stressed out, worried, you know, all of that. But I have to say like, he made such a point to not make a big deal about the fact that he was there and to make us comfortable and to not hover. That after a while, you almost right. forgot that he was there, and he was just another like friend or a colleague in the room. So he did a really good job of that, I have to say.
1: Yeah, pretty a pretty down to earth, personable guy. I thought um, so. Yeah, but and you give it, you give a, a kind of neat story. Um, you've got you know, you guys are going twenty four seven, and it's yeah. Thanksgiving, and you're you, you're in the office. You guys have to work uh, on Thanksgiving
2: yes so um obviously you know you're not getting days off we didn't even ask like why would you we didn't really want to take a day off to be totally honest and he made such a point so this was Thanksgiving none of us were allowed to go home and his wife if anyone knows anything about her she's actually a really good cook she always bakes and cooks and he was always bringing stuff in from her and she made us an entire thanksgiving dinner and he he brought it into our office and i guess it i know it sounds silly but it was sort of personal things like that, that really, in my opinion, changed the rapport and dynamic of what we were doing. And we, we just like forgot he was there, not in a bad way, but just, he was not there to tell us what to do. He right. was just there to support right. us.
1: Yeah. Peace. Yeah. No, I mean, for, for anyone that leads any team of any size out there, it's a reminder that it's this kind of thing that stays with your team for yeah. a very long time That's and, true. Uh, and makes a difference. Um, okay. Okay. Now, there are more than there's more people than just George Tenet that show up in this unit. Um, (laughs) There's some pretty, pretty big uh, other names. You know what? Yeah.
2: I started thinking about that um, actually. And I will say that Tenet actually put a stop to that after a while, because I think what and that's not in the book, because I think what he realized is we would become extremely nervous. Like we had clearly developed a rapport with Tenet. Right. We didn't care if he was in there. But, you know, uh, George Bush was in there not every day, but a bunch cheney was in there condoleezza rice was in there and that really puts you on edge and obviously i can't say what the program is but the work we're doing is very serious and it has huge implications and we really can't be distracted it almost became like a show and tell i guess situation oh yeah i do remember tenant getting tenant it is amazing i enjoyed working um with him. But when he gets upset, he gets upset. And he would throw people out oh. on like a daily basis. And I remember after a while, he stopped like that show, I guess, of, of people.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I had, a, I had something similar, not of this magnitude, but certainly when I was on scene commander uh, of the anthrax murder site, first anthrax uh. murder in history was in Boca Raton, Florida. And, and I, I ended up really asking myself, how how much time am I going to be spending leading this team in this building, uh, you know, going into this building uh, filled with anthrax spores and, and trying to resolve this, and how much time am I going to be spending briefing people with fancy titles? And and yeah, it's it's that kind of frustration that can set in. But you know, there comes a time, as you share in your book, where there's the White House. Uh, you know, it's not just George Bush, but it's it's his it's people around George Bush who are showing up, and and this is this gets to the larger issue of. WMDs trying to track weapons of mass destruction, and and whether or not intelligence is really, can be exploited and spun for political purposes. Can you, what what can you share about, you know, the people who showed up looking at your work, your unit's work, and, and maybe hoping for some outcomes that may or may not have been there?
2: So I think I got lucky with the first thing, the first, I guess, kind of classified program that I was on, in that it was so new. This is gonna sound really trite, and I don't mean it to. I don't think anyone knew quite how to manipulate the intelligence from it yet. <laughs> that makes any sense, mm-hmm. um you know? Like the night that we lost Bin Laden and Tora Bora, I mean, that's all out there. I was on duty that night, working that night, and they weren't able to to really manipulate that. It was when I was moved after that to a new division that was set up in the Counterterrorism Center. Mm-hmm. That's when I started to see that raw intelligence basically could definitely be manipulated to yeah, serve and,
1: a goal yeah to sur- to serve a goal that that um, might might be a valid goal but might cause um, as you say intelligence to be manipulated for that purpose you come out pretty strongly in your book and and I appreciate the candor and the unvarnished truth there and you're you're not the only one to have said this but you have a strong position on on George Bush's decision to go into Iraq as based on a presumption that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Tell us, tell us about yeah. where that comes from.
2: So I don't, and you know, it's interesting, my book, I don't have a political agenda with my book. I speak highly of Bush and I don't speak highly of Bush, right? I, you know, I speak highly of Clinton. I don't speak highly of Clinton. I kind of have, I don't have a political agenda. And I think Bush, in my opinion, at the time, did everything right with Afghanistan. And I'm, I'm not critical of that at all. In fact, I praise him quite a bit in Iraq. is <laughs> was a completely different story. And so the unit that I was detailed to was the Counterterrorism Center's Weapons of Mass Destruction Unit. And so a lot of times it gets mixed up with Iraq and WMDs, but we existed actually before that. And our job was, as you said, to stop anthrax attacks, ricin attacks, um, botulinum attacks. And a guy named Abu Musab Zarkawi was who bin Laden tapped to do that and so we actually we're not even looking at a rock um that i served nine different tours over in different places trying to get human intelligence on that but in order to keep our people straight that we were either trying to find trying to recruit as human assets whatever even though i wasn't an analyst um i worked on the operation side you still make charts i know that sounds strange but it helps us actually keep people straight and on those charts we have their name last known location, last known phone number, and just helps us. Um, And so we had a huge chart made, and we put it up on our like cubicle bullpens, I guess, it's really not sexy where we work. (laughs) And a member um, of the the Bush administration, I can't say who um, came down and told our division chief, who is also an example of an amazing leader, hey, I want a copy of that chart. And none of us knew what it was going to be used for and our division chief made the right call and gave it to him it wasn't there wasn't a question about that and the chart and you can google it online the chart originally said this our cowie poison network because that's what it was to us but a couple days later colin powell used that exact chart with the title changed and online you can see it with the title changed, and it says Al-Qaeda's connections to Iraq and WMDs with all of our targets and all of their information. And it's a lot of people ask me, you know, when you saw that, weren't you just like so worried about Iraq? If you want me to be honest with you, no, because Iraq wasn't my My area of operation right that wasn't what i looked at what was upsetting to me was now all of our human assets have gone underground now all of our human assets might die now we've lost track of all of these bad guys and sure enough three weeks later those same bad guys because we couldn't find them blew up a subway in spain and so that was more i guess from an operations perspective what i was concerned about but obviously we know now it had larger implications
1: yeah yeah i mean um you know let, let's just call it what it is there there was there was no solid evidence that there were on, on ongoing wmds in iraq and none. off we went to war now you well, as part of your duties you know you share some of your training experiences which are pretty neat one one was uh, one training experience you had was going to poison school do i have that right yes yeah.
2: We affectionately called it poison school. Um, I think it was like biological weapons, tra- you know, it had a more formal name than that, but all of us called it poison school. It was just easier. And I think, you know, because a lot of people are like, well, you must have a background in like biology, but I don't. Right. And most people don't. I don't right. even speak another language. The CIA wasn't looking for that at the time. And so um, we, they had to show us how easy and cheap it is to make this stuff, which I think is, Really disturbing, um, you know, when you yeah. think about it. To the vast majority
1: of yeah. the American people. Yeah. The key, the key, of course, is for those uh, kind of our listeners trying to scratch their heads and go, wait, "Wait, wait a minute, what was that?" The key, of course, is to learn what the adversary needs to acquire their shopping list. Mm-hmm. In this case, of particular chemicals or or components um, that would together combine to make poison of 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 one kind or another. And yeah, you don't really have to be a biochemist. You have to go. Wait a minute. I see this person acquiring these items and maybe and maybe it's an entire cell all separately acquiring individual components. And, and the aha moment occurs that, yeah, I see, I know what they're doing and I know why they're doing it. And then you talk about another training experience. Was it called, do I have this right? It, it involves the car uh, yes. and le- learning how to drive a car under stress. And is it crash bang school? Do I have that? Crash right? and
2: bang. Crash so- and bang. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. So portions of my book are redacted, uh, but that's after five full rewrites of the book to get it to look like that. Mm -hmm. The CIA originally redacted Crash and Bang, but I referenced like four other books (laughs) that it's in, um, and they, I I want an appeal to get it in. Um, But (laughs) Crash and Bang, in my opinion, was the best part of the training, which I know people think is Crazy, but I just loved everything about it. You know, you're learning how to crash cars. You're learning that you're not gonna die, right? Yeah. You know, if, if you react properly in a car crash, you're also learning, I think, something that's very important, which is situational awareness, like what to do if you're stopped in a car and someone puts a gun up to your head. You don't sit there and negotiate with them, you hit the gas pedal and you move forward.
1: Right. And some of that is so counterintuitive to human right. nature. Like, yeah, gun to my head as I'm driving the car, I'm going to stop. No, the the right thing to do may be no hit the gas plow through the threat. Right. Right.
2: Which is what, you know, we did and what I think they're just trying to train. (laughs) Sounds crazy. They're trying to train the common sense out of you. They're trying to rewire your brain um, to react differently. I just I loved everything about that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the most moving passage in the book for me by far. And again, this is just for me. You you detail uh, an experience you're overseas. It sounds like you're in a really hairy environment. I won't I won't ask you to tell where you were. I, I don't I don't think you can. It sounds to me like it's probably a combat theater, but I don't know. I don't know. It's a dangerous place. And you already have um, a prior back condition, back surgery, um, but you end up slipping and falling down some marble stairs, and uh, Navy SEALs uh, who you worked alongside or uh, occasionally. They come by, they they see you in this condition, they they end up putting you on a helicopter and medevacing you out to get looked at. And then while you're lying in some hospital tent somewhere, you hear what going on outside.
2: Yeah, and it's um it's funny, like you block some of it out, right? Because obviously it's a traumatic experience. Um yeah, they made me get looked at. I did not want to get looked at, um, but they made me get looked at. And so I was in yeah, a medic tent they sort of have different triage tents, I guess, if you will, um, and I was actually waiting to get imaged. So I was in like the emergency tents and all of a sudden I hear sort of uh, it sounds like a tornado siren, but it's it's really just threat sirens that are going off and they take me and put me in. Dirt. I guess it's you know sort of an inverted um, hole, um, and then they just cover me completely with flak jackets because there has been a bombing right outside of where we were in that particular medical facility, and so that's what was going on.
1: Yeah, and you. I mean, you're you're lying there in this trench, which, quite frankly, you know, it seems like it may have dawned on you: Am I going to die? Is this my grave? Is this a place where I could end up dying? But you, you eventually the threat uh, morphs and changes and you're back in the hospital tent setting and you realize casual, they have to move you because casualties are coming in, right?
2: Well, so part of the, um, they actually wouldn't move me at first and I was getting uh, mad um, because they were bringing in casualties into this particular tent. And like, I just really wanted to get up and help. But the problem was, is I've had so many back injuries that I could have been paralyzed. They just, they needed to make sure there wasn't anything penetrating my spine. And so they wouldn't let me get up. And that was what was really frustrating, but they were bringing in, most people died, quite frankly, in that particular bombing. And it was really all women um, because- it right was, out,
1: yeah, it was locals, right? It was yes, locals. it was
2: all locals. It was yeah. all women. And what I came to find out, which I don't know if this was a good idea, but right outside the base of where we were was actually the like local- market i don't want to call it by name because it'll tell you where i was but um it was actually a local market and so women were doing you know it traditionally in this culture women do that and so it was all women um who were being brought in most of them not that much older than i was quite frankly and you could tell because i could see the colors of their um you know face coverings that they were women and um i mean burned completely burned i mean a hundred percent skin is falling off and they can't start IVs on them and they're just basically trying to make them comfortable to die. And I'm sitting, you know, trying to like, look at these women and I I just wanted to get up and help them.
1: Yeah. And, and you end up sharing that there's a woman lying next to you on a, on a stretcher or or gurney and, and uh, you, it dawns on you, maybe, maybe a nurse shares with you, but she, she's not going to make it. She's alive, but she's not going to make it you end up blocking eyes with her in her final moments. What, what was that like?
2: That was hard. Um, because I'm trying, you know, it's a lot of trauma, I guess, when you think about it going through all, of, there was a lot of things I was doing there that had an impact, of course, but I think you could definitely see, you know, the whites of her eyes. I couldn't she was, I don't mean to be so graphic, but she was so burned that, you know, the whites of her eyes were like very, very pronounced. And I just remembered the one thing I was thinking when the nurse told me, and the nurse was so kind to her. The nurse was just trying to, I don't think she understood English, but she was trying in English to say kind things um, to her. But I think that, I think what I just realized is that looking at her, even though she was from a different country, didn't speak my language, lived a very different life than I did, were really just all the same. And she just wanted to be comforted in that that time of of death, quite frankly. And I think that's kind of what I took away from that.
1: Yeah, indeed. We all become quite human and the same
2: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, as in certain moments of our our life and and our demise. So Tracy, there comes a time where you make a decision based on, on a realization that the CIA may not be the best fit for you, um, and you, you decide to move on from there. Tell us about that decision-making process, why and and where you, you end up going.
2: So I felt like I actually made a mature decision for someone my age. I wasn't running away from anything. I loved my time at the agency. I had all these exceptional performance awards. I, I loved my division chief. I loved my branch chief. I loved my colleagues but I realized that I didn't want to live overseas anymore. And that's just not how I saw the rest of my life panning out. And the thing is, is that is central to what the agency is and what my job was there. And I don't want to change that about the agency. So I still loved the counterterrorism mission. And I actually, there were two FBI agents that were detailed uh, to us and they had been there before September 11th. And they, actually were really nice guys. And um, I remember talking to them um, about the FBI. And I thought, okay, this will be great. I can still work at this counterterrorism mission that I, I had grown to really love, but I can do it here in the United States and remain, you know, wherever they put me kind of countrywide. And so I made the decision um, to apply. They came to head, CIA headquarters, you know, did my 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 interview there, uh, their polygraph was nothing. Right, it's a different,
1: it's a different polygraph. We won't, we won't get into that. But yeah, it's a different, different approach. But...
2: <laughs> yes, and I reported for Quantico.
1: Yeah, yeah, you got in, and clearly highly qualified background for for FBI, and it would make sense. The logic you're you're articulating makes sense, right? You you made a decision. Hey, this overseas stuff is getting to me. It's not what I want to do moving forward to the future. From the outside looking in, the agency experience can be extremely isolating, particularly to those who are operators overseas. And I get it; it makes sense. And yet, your experience—and I've got to say, from my own experience, twenty-five years in—is really kind of aberrational. It, it, your experience at the academy is—I will say this—it's an understatement. It's not optimal. It's not—it's not optimal.
2: <laughs> I love the way that you put that. i am going to—I'm going to steal that, and I'm going yeah. to use that.
1: Yeah, no, I I know we're laughing about it, but I, I, and I've expressed this to you, you know, when we've talked before, I'm really upset by the experience you had at Quantico.
2: But the point is not to to make people upset, right? The point is, you know, I can only speak from my lived experience. I know plenty of FBI agents who are amazing humans, and I wish I had the opportunity to have worked, you know, more with them, right? But that just wasn't in the cards for me. But I think too. I kind of thought about it a little bit more uh, recently. The two agencies in general, for some reason, have this animosity and and competitive nature between each other. Now, my experience in the Counterterrorism Center at CIA actually wasn't that. We worked hand in hand quite well um, with the Bureau, but that was new. That was in its infancy working you know with JTTFs and all of those kinds of things was actually really new if we think about it before 9 11 really the agencies were kind of doing their own thing on their own and so the idea of them being together was very very new so i'm wondering now if the perceptions are different but you know we're coming off the heels of like robert hansen people were the agency was really upset about that, blamed the Bureau for it, you know, and then you've got the Bureau blaming the CIA for, you know, September 11th. So you really have the two agencies have an animosity towards each other. None of that has anything to do with me. <laughs> Obviously I didn't do either of those things, but I think sometimes that gets taken out on people. And I think that got taken out.
1: Yeah, on I think, I think bit. from reading the book and speaking with you, I think that's true. And I think there's also another leadership lesson here for, for our listeners. And that is, One or two people, one or two people in a leadership position, can make life really untenable for somebody. And and you know, don't be that person if you're in a leadership position. Just just don't. And and yes, to echo what Tracy's saying, yes. you know you every time i as i moved up the ranks in the fbi i found that if i was going to get things done with the agency it was going to be about personal relationships and and it was either going to happen or it wasn't i, I we you know there were times when people were willing to work hard on the relationship building and it, and it worked um but then there were times when simply people would not overcome or be willing to overcome the institutional baggage of competitiveness of, of deceitfulness perceived deceitfulness on, on each side yeah. And then as someone who had to, you know, was literally writing MOUs, governing the relationship between the two <laughs> agencies, you know, it was, wow, um, quite an experience. I'm, I'm happy to say for, for our listeners that the nation is safer because of things that were put in place post 9-11 to kind of force the marriage. And the marriage does work between the agency and the FBI. And, and it's the evidence of that is that we haven't had a major iconic attack. So it works, but it, it's pain. It's painful stuff, and and uh, and Tracy, you you experience some of it. You go off to your first office in the FBI, anyway, and it's a large office, the Los Angeles uh, div- division, and specifically a very large resident agency in Santa Ana. And you work. You work. My what is my passion? You end up working counterintelligence.
2: So yeah that didn't start off being my passion. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest, you know, I came from working counterterrorism. I certainly wasn't like egotistical about it. I think I just assumed because I worked counterterrorism at the agency I'd probably just do it at the bureau, which I mean that's fine. I didn't really no, have Tracy, hard Tracy that would my, make my... sense.
1: And that, <laughs> we can't have that. <laughs> we can't, we can't have that.
2: No, but I I realized I do realize now though why I worked, you know, the case that I did. Uh you know, I think I approach a lot of things to just like this is a cool opportunity to learn something new, right? And so the Santa Ana RA, you know, it's really my hometown. Quite frankly, I don't know how I got so lucky. I did put the LA office first, and as you, I'm sure know, Frank, like if you put, you know, SFO, LA Field, out any of those, like yeah. first, you're oh, gonna yeah. get it. So yeah,
1: I, I can, I could I can remember my new agents' class at Quantico, Eons ago. I, <laughs> I'm telling everybody in class. Go ahead, please put in for New York and L.A. Please go right ahead. You go, you go right go ahead. For it, yeah. Because I don't want that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and I knew that I was going to get yeah. it because I put it first. I mean, either no one wants it. They're such big offices, and so I knew I was going to get L.A. I was just very surprised to open that envelope though and see Sienna Anna um, as well. To the point that even um, my really not nice director thought it was a mistake. It yeah. was a really good time. Um, it was really embarrassing. He actually called me. I don't have this in the book. Um, he actually called me out of, and I don't know if this room looks the same, but it was kind of like a little mini amphitheater yeah. classroom, yeah. right. That we had and you know, you open up your, your yeah, envelopes yeah. in front of there. And he actually called me out, asked me to come outside with him and bring my envelope with me because he needed to call and make sure that it wasn't a mistake. Holy cow. That. Yeah. Got, so finally, Yeah.
1: God forbid somebody should go back to their home area. Wow, wow, still it's, yeah, yeah. it's unusual.
2: I know. And there was another guy in my class who was assigned to an RA, it was the Lowell RA, which is a small RA. And he didn't do that to him, but he did that to me. We're the only two that went to RAs, which I guess isn't surprising, reflecting back on that. But I was working um, Chinese counterintelligence and it ended up um, being one of the larger- Oh yeah. Chinese CI cases, I guess, (laughs) <laughs> sounds strange, but before it was cool, right, to like work right, Chinese Right. CIA. Yeah, you
1: worked You worked a case that really is uh, famous or infamous and is studied by by most of bureau uh, Chinese counterintelligence agents. A- absolutely. Yeah. It's good and I case. loved it. Hey, I, I want to now transition because you transitioned out of the FBI. Tell us about that decision. And now let's get into really <laughs> what, uh, you know, CIA, FBI, really cool. Great. But I... I am so impressed with how you combined those experiences to do what you're doing now. So get us to that point.
2: Yeah, sure. So I, I left the FBI and I decided, you know, now as good as time as any. I'd saved money to go get my master's degree and be that teacher that I wanted to be. So I enrolled, I got my master's in education and my first job teaching, this is not in a book, fun fact, was in the same classroom with the same teacher as my mentor teacher who inspired me to be a teacher. So I started teaching public school in California at the very same high school that I went to growing up. So it was kind of this weird, um, I stayed there for for three years until, um, you know, we moved to Dallas. And when I moved to Dallas, I did teach at a public school here in Texas. But I think I started to sort of look at single sex, single gender schools, because I just thought it might be, a neat and different experience. Also, it was a little bit closer to where our house was. The school I was at was very, very far. And um, I found this this school that two of my sorority sisters went to. That's how I found out about the school um, was because I knew that they had gone there and I applied. And I started realizing that these women want to pursue these careers, but have no idea how and no understanding of the fact that they can still make a difference in national security not necessarily being an FBI agent or a CIA officer um, they can be an attorney they can they can do so many different things and so I started to create a class for them on national security yeah, and this um, is
1: this is at the, I want to be clear so our listeners under under this is at the high school level right yes. <laughs> and you're 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 teaching things like terrorism yes na- national security yes yeah and to young girls who may never as you say, never have thought, given any second thought or a first thought to a career in national security work?
2: I mean, I think if we want to make a difference, right? Um, If I I started realizing we need to maybe change the gender narrative a little bit. There's, you know, women only make up about 24% um, of national security and even less um, of special agents at the Bureau. And if we want to change the gender narrative, we bring some, I think men bring amazing things to the table, but I think women bring amazing things to the table too. We need to hear both. And so I think, I realized if I wanted to change the gender narrative, I could just sit around and complain about it, or I could create a way for these young ladies to pursue careers in these fields and, and help to make a difference that way. And quite frankly, getting them to want to have these jobs is just about getting them to care. You know, I remember when we had the Boston Marathon bombing, a lot of them had no idea. Um, and so I would start to create, um, like you know, understanding the Boston Marathon bombing in two minutes or less, I'd create videos for them and send it to the whole school. And so, you know, you have 1200 young ladies now who now all understand like what this is. And so they can care and then they can make a difference. And I think that's been really my passion, but I wouldn't have gotten there if I didn't have the CIA and the FBI.
1: Right, as you said, uh, to repeat your kind of mantra is you, the CIA experience taught you what you wanted to teach and the FBI experience helped you learn who you want to teach which is young young ladies um, and this this isn't just a uh, theoretical you've had success in the form, oh, yeah. success in the form of uh, your former students who now are in those kinds of jobs tell us about that
2: so i have students that are you know in the fbi some are special agents some are analysts um, i have students that are at the agency um, so they do all kinds of different things there. But I also have students that work for Department of Homeland Security. Um, I have students that work for um, Border Patrol. I have students that you know are kind of all across the board. Some of them work for the Department of Justice. Two of them are attorneys now um, with the Department of Justice. I have some that are in the Navy now because they went to the Naval Academy. And so I view national security not just in this one little funnel, right? You know, I think it pertains to all these different fields it's and, really
1: it's really service isn't yes. it it's it's public service in in a in certain specific areas but yeah it's also you know kudos not only to you but kudos to the school administration and the parents yes. who who say yeah we're good with this we yes. we're going to let you do this kind of non-traditional thing in at the high school level i
2: that's a great point um major kudos to their parents and um to school administrators for allowing me to do that and being so accepting of it to kind of yeah. give it a chance.
1: Yeah. The impact, you know, it's, it's really setting in now the impact you have to have as a high school teacher to then to plant that seed, nourish it. And then, you know, years late years have to go by. A student has to go through college, has to get into college, go to college, hit the workforce. Then you hear back years later. Oh yeah. I'm, I, I'm in the national security field. And the very fact that you, you're you in a position to hear that from them, right? It means there's a relationship there. It's really very, very impressive.
2: You know, I guess a fun uh, anecdote while we were talking, I got a text from a student who uh, just graduated college. And she, Mrs. Walder, what do you think the financial ramifications are going to be of the Ukraine-Russia crisis? I, I needed to reach out to you because I needed to know what you
1: thought. Wow. <laughs> and I get those
2: oh. most... Weekly, yeah. I would say. Yeah,
1: that that is so awesome. They I'm so proud is, of them. Yeah, it's all about relationships. And tell her that uh, Frank said it's a horrible financial uh, <laughs> picture that we're in. We're it definitely in, is. We're all in I big agree. trouble. We're in big <laughs> trouble. Yeah, for a long time ahead. But remind her are you know the fight for democracy is probably worth it. Let's hope so. Hey, this has been a fantastic uh, discussion. But I'd be remiss if I didn't get very timely and topical with you is that you've been on TV recently, particularly on, on the NBC networks, MSNBC, um, talking about something that you're kind of uniquely qualified to talk about, which is you, you are an expert trained gun handler, FBI, CIA, um, some of the best weapons training in the world. Uh, and I'm showing my bias here, but um, you're now a teacher in the state of Texas. And we've had this horrible tragedy in Uvalde, Texas, at a school. And almost immediately, there were voices coming out saying, as usual, we've got to arm teachers. We, if teachers were armed, this wouldn't happen. And the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. You, you're a teacher, and you know how to handle a weapon. What's your position on this?
2: Yes. And I I will say the FBI has way better gun training than the CIA. (laughs) Way better. Like, hand over fist, way better uh, training. So awesome. Um, You know, it's funny because I guess what frustrates me and what boggles my mind is I don't feel that foreign policy and national security should be political. I've worked under two presidents. It is what it is. I don't understand why gun control is political. (laughs) And <laughs> I don't understand why we solve the problem of basically automatic rifles in schools with let's put more guns in schools. And I think back to what I had talked about earlier about why I loved that crash and bang course so much. One of the things that the FBI does an excellent job on, and I think the CIA does an excellent job on as well, is that situational awareness. The FBI is, is, absolutely the best at teaching you how to handle a gun, how to shoot a gun, proper gun safety, all of that. But Hogan's Alley is really that's the situational awareness. That's where it all happens. That that's the bottom line, you know. And I think when you tell a teacher, I think it's Ohio, it says less than 24 hours of training, that you're just going to teach them how to point and shoot a gun. When you have a high stress situation, like a school shooting or an intruder, they're going to run in the interest of self preservation away. That's normal. I don't fault anyone for that. You know, they didn't have the training like you and I did of running to a threat. And we saw those police officers didn't even run to a threat. So why are we expecting teachers to do the same? And I just think you're going to have a lot more Accidental shootings and things mm-hmm. of that nature. Um, mm-hmm. When you when you arm teachers, this isn't yeah. about being anti-gun. This is just common sense. No,
1: no, I don't think either one. Both of us have carried guns and badges, and uh, yeah, we're not anti-gun, but we are we are anti anti uh, unsafe guns and yes. putting <laughs> putting more more guns around kids in the hands of un, really largely untrained teachers. This idea of twenty hours of training what what was what was the FBI academy for you? Twenty weeks of training? Yes. <laughs> yeah, 20, 20 weeks shooting thousands, thousands of rounds every day or every other day.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, as you said, Hogan's Alley takes you from the kind of sterile environment of a firing range where you're shooting at paper to uh, a mock city at Quantico, Virginia, that allows you to experience uh, you know, using a weapon on a street. And uh, to say a, t- a teacher is going to be able to, to Figure that out and shoot in a an environment filled with kids, um, where bullets pass through classrooms and more classrooms and people is foolhardy. Foolhardy. Yeah.
2: And I'll be very vulnerable, I guess, for a second. You know, part of why I'm not in law enforcement or that those types of jobs anymore is that I'm not necessarily willing to put risk my life. Um, you know, to to sounds awful. You know, to stop a threat. I expect law enforcement to do that. I don't expect teachers to do that. That's that's not what our job is. And I hope that doesn't make me a bad person, but I think no, but I think, I think expectations are different.
1: Yeah, I think there's uh, there are too many uh, priorities at work for a teacher when something like this is happening. There's the lockdown, there's the caring for the kids, there's the let's get quiet, whatever training happens within a school lockdown environment. And then there's the kind of counter Uh, To that, which is no, I'm going to draw a weapon and I'm going to go seek out a bad guy, uh, which may actually be counterproductive to 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 protecting your kids. Yeah, to be continued. Let's uh, keep our fingers crossed that some sanity comes into this process. But um, it's been my pleasure, and as I said, Tracy, I'm I'm not only thankful for the fact that you're a guest and we had the time to do this, but also for your service to the country and your continued service as a teacher, and particularly in service of young women. Thank you.
2: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for your service as well.
1: Thank you. The adventure continues. Our guest has been Tracy Walder. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining our discussion with CIA operative, FBI agent, teacher and mom, Tracy Walder. Now, if you've ever seen the old TV show Spencer for Hire or read any of the Spencer series of detective novels, you're going to want to join us next time. As we sit down with the man who's authored 10 of the Spencer series of detective novels, author, crime novelist, Ace Atkins, will be our guest next time as we take you behind and beyond The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi.
0: The Bureau is written by Frank Fogluzzi, and executive produced by Allison Gill, with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey, with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.